podcast one production. Welcome to Ag Reminders. G'day, I'm Chris Russell. As we consider the key factors for successful agricultural production in Australia, in this episode, we'll look at what is perhaps a hidden obstacle for our future food security. That is both the availability and the mining of energy, mainly coal and gas, from beneath our farmlands. I continue to refer to former CSIRO Chief Dr Megan Clark's prognosis that in the next 50 years, we will eat more food than has been eaten in the entire history of humanity. And currently, we only know how to produce 30% of that. Because that is the driving force that must underlie the strategy for Australian food production. The mining of energy can take away land and underground water that is otherwise used for food production. However, the lack of availability of cheap local energy means a price hike in food production, which all of us will bear. Indeed, energy on one hand and food and fibre production on the other often compete for the same land, the same water and the same government resources. There is therefore a legitimate question to be asked, which inspired this episode, which I've called, Can We Have Our Cake and Heat It Too? In Australia, uniquely, farmers only own and have rights over their topsoil. Others own what is beneath, and the rights of both owners to manage and trade their own resources can be incompatible and a source of much tension and distraction. This potential conflict between farmers and miners, mainly coal and gas, within our most productive and fertile land regions has indeed been palpable and at times bitter. And yet, ironically, those same farmers yearn for cheaper energy for fertiliser production, irrigation pumping and machinery. Is this resolvable? Is it possible to turn this into a win-win? This episode will explore whether or not we can balance between the needs of food and fibre production and the extraction of coal and gas. Then in terms of our 50-year target for food production... How do you balance the critical nature of food and fibre production against the insatiable need for energy of our community? And who should decide? The farmer and owner of the land or the miner with the rights to what is below? To look at these critical questions, we'll look to agriminders from global academia, Australian grassroots farming and the experience from being at the very top of Australian political leadership. Our first agriminder is Dr Sven Teske. Sven is the Research Director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS in Sydney. He is undoubtedly a world authority on renewable energy. He has 20 years' experience in technical analysis of renewable energy systems. He's published over 50 special reports about renewable energies and he's a member of the advisory panel of the Japanese Renewable Energy Foundation. Welcome to Agriminder, Sven. Thanks for having me here. Sven, um, globally, there's no doubt that energy mining, be it coal or I suppose you could even include nuclear, but coal or gas in particular, is a way out of the poverty trap for a lot of these underdeveloped or developing countries. They have two ways forward. They either have peasantry or their land can actually be used for mining. 
It's very hard to explain people who are inside of the guillotine exactly that they should just give all that up for the good of the world. How are governments resolving that? Not to mention the fact that the governments tend to make massive money out of the royalties from these mining issues. Well, in fact, um, the majority of the money invested in renewables um, last year and over the last five years has been uh, uh, invested from developing countries. Uh, the reason why developing countries go into renewables is that uh, dev- uh, re- renewable energy is simply cheaper than fossil fuels. Um, right now, solar and wind power generation are the cheapest form of electricity generation if you build new power plants and therefore uh, 50% of all new Uh, solar power plants in the world last year have been built in China. Um, India is a huge market uh, as well as Brazil. So uh, the developing countries actually move into renewables because it's quicker to build. It's, uh, it takes less than a year, while, while a coal power plant, for example, takes seven years, five to seven years to build. So it's actually a very large market for uh, developing countries, and that is um, believed to continue. But, but the money that's available, these mining companies seem to have unlimited money. And the reason for that is that the energy you get from traditional fossil fuels is worth so much money still, despite that. And therefore, the money they can offer these farmers for taking the mine taking their properties and mining them and losing their value as an agricultural production unit. You know, you can't fight it. It's very hard to fight. Money speaks a thousand languages. Well, if you look for the situation in India, for example, India is definitely has definitely a, a, a land problem. Uh, land use is a huge issue, and therefore um, food production is uh, has usually priority. So it is not at all the case that um, mining companies will get... Um, agricultural land very easily in almost no country around the world right now. And as uh, coal, oil and gas prices continue to decline and renewable energy takes the massive share of uh, new build, um, I don't think that uh, it's fair to argue that uh, in mining, uh, the majority of the money can be made for uh, farmers. I think renewable energy is in a far better position without destroying the country. So in your professional opinion, developed countries like USA and Australia and uh, you know, other countries that are um, sophisticated first world countries, I say sophisticated in the developed commercial sense, do you think they've come to grips with the idea of the long-term need for food security versus the short-term value to their coffers of royalties from mining? Um, well, that's a difficult question because it's different uh, situation, different countries. If uh, we look uh, to the U.S., for example, the U.S. is one of the largest uh, wind and solar markets around the world. It's number three and, uh, and number four in those technologies. And um, in those in, in the U.S., farmers actually invest heavily in renewables because they harvest the wind and the sun over the fields. So they actually have agricultural production and wind or solar electricity production Um, and that's for them a possibility to also cross-subsidize their food production sometimes uh, in case of a very fierce international competition. The same is true in my home country Germany where farmers actually started in line with Danish farmers uh, the wind industry almost 30 years ago uh, and farmers were among the first investors in wind um, and currently farmers still have about 70% of all installed capacities in Germany. 
let's just talk about power then because all I hear on the radio, maybe I listen to the wrong stations, but all I hear on the radio is that it's impossible for baseload power in Australia to be generated from wind and solar because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine, the batteries aren't good enough. Um, and, of course, in Australia we probably get more sunshine than most people. Uh, and so we, the only way we're going to keep baseload power out, and they're talking about shutting down power stations being a disaster, you know, we've got to keep them open at all costs. Are, th- are they all wrong or wh- where, where are we going wrong with that? I think um, the term base load uh, power generation is a bit confused. Uh, we have a base load and we have power generation. Uh, there is a base load, obviously, um, but there is no not directly a base generation required. I don't understand that. Just say, explain that to me a bit better. Well, I mean, we have, uh, we have always de- demand in terms of electricity, but we don't necessarily need to um, use one technology to provide that. If we combine different technologies like solar and wind plus biomass plus, plus hydro and within the next 10, 20 years also uh, to some extent gas or if available geothermal, this combination of all those different technologies plus storage to some extent plus demand side management will provide an absolute um, reliable power supply and will make us independent from fuel prices. Because what the, the advantage of a of solar wind-dominated system is, is you actually know the generation cost over the next 20 years because there are no fuel prices involved. It's a very stable uh, power supply. It's a very pay, uh, stable price. Um, and se- several countries actually generate more than 30 or 40 or even 50% solar and wind together already. Um, Germany has right now about 20% solar and wind. Denmark has 45% wind power alone. Um, and they are able to um, combine demand side management, storage, dispatch power plants with biomass, mainly with biomass and hydro, and also import export. That's situated, that, that's not possible for Australia, obviously. But um, those countries combine different technologies and storage and demand side management to have a reliable power supply. And that's, uh, that's not, not, not something magic. That's just possible. And uh, business as usual for many countries already. So how much further have we got to go in Australia to get anywhere near being able to say we can start shutting down coal-fired power stations and still meet the demands of, you know, Tomago have a big smelter up there, which they're talking about shutting down all the time because there's not enough power. South Australia, of course, and they had a disaster last year because, you know, the power coming in from Victoria from coal-fired plants didn't work. Um, you know, where how far away are we from being able to be dependent on wind and solar? I think it's uh, it's a it's an ongoing process. First, we actually need a reliable energy policy. Uh, that's basically the first step. Before we actually start to make projections, to make uh, plans, uh, to have investment pathway, we actually need a very reliable and secure energy policy over the next 10 or 20 reliable years. Reliable in what? How do you mean by reliable? Do you mean from the federal government? Uh, reliable in, in, uh, in terms of uh, no changes, uh, policy changes every second year. So Sven, you know, given in Australia we currently mainly get our power from coal-fired stations, but we're not building any more coal-fired mm. stations, how much further have we got to go that we can start saying, look, we now really don't need the coal-fired stations, we can rely on our solar and wind power? 
Well, that depends a bit on the state, obviously, because the electricity mix is different from uh, from state to state. Uh, as a first step, we actually need a federal reliable electric energy policy, which will not be changed every year or every second year or for uh, after every election. Uh, once we have that, uh, we can actually start accelerating wind, especially in uh, in the southern part of Australia, because the wind resources are really good and much better, for example, than in northern Europe. Uh, the capacity factors are twice as high as in northern Europe. Um, and also we can start to build um, some pump storage hydro, which is um, planned and suggested from the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA. And uh, altogether, I would say, um, if we start now, within the next 10 to 15 years, we can gradually phase out coal and uh, move towards um, solar and wind-dominated systems. So it's not a date where, say, uh, in, in four and a half years. It's actually a process where we start right now and then increase the capacities of different renewable energy, increase the capacity of demand side management uh, possibilities and storage and dispatch power plants. And then by 2030, we could be almost entirely 100% renewables. So we can't get to 2030 with our current coal-fired stations. Does that mean we do need the coal and gas in the interim um, that we're talking about mining to get us to that point? Uh, we don't need all the coal power plants uh, and the majority is very old. So we can actually um, shut them down and install new renewables uh, as we go. And uh, for the interim, we need gas, uh, but I don't believe, I don't think that we actually need uh, new exploration in gas. We can actually use the existing mines and uh, gradually phase them out once, we ha- once we're there. What about affordability? Uh, I, I sat in a power broker's um, rooms in Sydney um, a year ago on a charity mission there, uh, and I was watching the prices people were paying for, for peaks of power, and they bid almost hourly for this. Um, and anything that came out of coal-fired power, they could pick up for, you know, $35, $40 um, a, a megawatt hour. But as soon as you start talking solar or wind, you're talking $80, $120 a megawatt hour that they were bidding. And that's why South Australia's energy costs are running something times three to four times what New South Wales energy costs are running because they don't have any coal-fired. They're totally dependent really on this wind and solar. Now, that's a massive disadvantage for South Australian industry. How, how do we resolve that issue? Well, I mean, first, um, coal power plants exist already on average 30 years in Australia. So that means they're paid off. That's why they're actually cheaper right now. If we compare new build with new build, solar and wind is cheaper. But um, if you compare uh, currently built or new build with 30 years ago built, obviously the written off power plants are uh, cheaper. That's that's clear. So if we built a new coal-fired power station today, then the cost of the power out of that would be competitive with wind or solar. Um, the uh, new coal power plant would actually cost more. So um, if you compare a new build coal power plant with a new build wind farm or a solar farm, coal is significantly more expensive. Right. And in terms of being, a, you know, a, a pusher of carbon into the atmosphere, is this new technique of um, low emission coal-powered power stations, is that technology such that we can be confident that it isn't going to be pushing you know, more greenhouse gases out or is that not happening? Well, the thing is in Paris, the uh, climate agreement um, agreed that we want to stay significantly under two degrees 
plus two degrees, which basically means we have to decarbonize our energy system entirely by 2040 or 2050. And therefore, new power plants, no matter how much CO2 they emit, new power plants which emit CO2 cannot be built. So under the Paris Agreement, um, low carbon coal power plants are not enough. We need zero carbon. Right. Okay, well, so let's talk a little bit about um, Narrabri because that's currently in the news. Now, um, the chief scientist, chief engineer, Mary O'Kane, was hired to do an inquiry to see whether there could be a coexistence, if you like, between between, um, uh, agricultural use of that land out there uh, and also with mining the gas particularly that comes out of the bottom of it. The farmers are potentially going to be offered a lot of money being able to extract the mining from what they can mine under their ground. Of course, in Australia here, farmers don't own anything below the topsoil. So you've got two Mm. owners of the same block of land who have to somehow agree, which is always difficult. But the argument, if you like, will be that um, the water base that goes underneath that will become so contaminated that it will stop so much agricultural production that, in fact, you know, the long-term losses will far exceed even the high value of the, of the gas that they're going to be able to take out of there. Of course, the miner's answer is we'll give you all the money you want and we won't take anyone's farm that doesn't want to, but we'll take the farms that do want to. But that sort of money is going to be a lot of farms that do. It sounds like a really tricky situation. I, I'm I'm an agricultural scientist. My world is all about solving how we're going to feed all those extra people. We're going to eat more food in the next 50 years than has been eaten the whole history of humanity, and currently we only know how to make about 30% of that. And at the same time, we want to destroy the same country to produce energy, to be able to heat us and to give us energy. Oh, it's reconcilable. And I, I just wonder how, particularly with, with the experts saying they can be reconciled, how government is going to deal with that and come up with a solution that's uh, going to let us keep that land productive, but at the same time, give the miners their rights to extract the grass from underneath it. Well, um, we don't really need extra gas uh, in order to uh, secure the... But if we, do, we don't need it from a global perspective, mm. but if someone owns a, some land and some rights mm. and the gas, doesn't he have the right, from his point of view, to be able to take that out and sell it? Well, um, there is also uh, a right, I think, for the general public and for this country to have clean water. Um, and if this, con- this company cannot guarantee that the water remains clean and uncontaminated, uh, then I would uh, stay away from that. And besides that, if farmers would invest or would allow uh, project developers for solar and wind to use their land, um, this, this land could be productive in, uh, as agricultural land and for energy production. Solar and wind uh, does not require any water. Um, and you can actually do farming and host solar and wind uh, power plants on your on your property. So um, they coexist. And in my home country, Germany, farmers usually have also wind farms and they have their potato, pot- for example, ma- mainly potato production, but also corn and other uh, plants uh, underneath the, or in between the wind farms. So you can actually uh, double use that, that country and that land. And I think that's a huge advantage for, uh, for the farmers. Also, uh, I've been up to the Narbrai. Um, there is uh, a real problem with, uh, with water and with rain, obviously. I was in one uh, region where they had no rain for the last two years. Uh, and that means um, 
if farmers uh, also install solar or wind farms on their property, they can actually um, sell electricity uh, during the drought and have an income during the drought. And I think that's a, that's a huge advantage. And if we look at the Narbrai, the Narbrai could supply like four or five or even more percent of the, the national electricity market um, and uh, they can export electricity. So if we have a lot of agricultural communities at the fringe of the grid um, and, so the, and those uh, communities supply electricity to the coastal areas... From solar and wind. From solar and wind, they have an income um, and we actually can expand our uh, electricity production significantly in terms of renewables. And that means that we have not... Um, farmers for food, but we have energy farmers as well. And I think that's a huge advantage also for rural communities. So are there any environmental considerations from wind? Um, yes, there's usually um, an uh, environmental impact assessment. Usually um, wind farms should not be built uh, next to swamps because of uh, birds. Um, that's a Basically, that's an experience over the last 30 years. Um, other than that, uh, wind farms uh, has, have proven to be environmental sound and environmentally friendly. So there's, there's no problem with that. The noise thing is not an issue? Um, the noise, the old wind farms, and I worked as an engineer on a test field 30 years ago. Um, it, they were quite loud, not anymore. And um, there are a lot of discussions about noise and, and infrasound and stuff like that. I think it's proven on a global level um, that this is not an issue and uh, that um, wind farms don't produce that noise anymore. So, that no, that's not a problem. So, I mean, it seems to me it's a bit of a no-brainer then that if, if, if there's no real issues from wind and solar in terms of the environment that the potential is there for, to, for them to produce power at the same cost as what a new coal-fired power station would cost. And we can maintain agricultural production, um, be it niche marketing, be it feeding the starving millions, whichever way, if we can maintain agricultural production in those lands. I, I'm not, I, I wouldn't have thought I was necessarily the guy that would be on my own in saying that's a no-brainer, that's what we should be doing. Why is there so much argument? Is it purely the money? Um, well, the thing is, um, an energy transition always has winners and losers, and uh, the money is not necessarily going to the same people. And I think that's that's the main problem, um, that those energy companies who are active in coal or gas are usually not active in renewables. I mean, that has changed. For example, Total is the, the biggest oil company in France. It's ha partly state-owned, and they are also... Um, um, one of the biggest solar uh, PV manufacturers in Europe. So it is possible, but um, right now coal and gas companies usually have no large stakes in uh, Yeah, in but give it, that, that's, they're going to argue for that, of course. But, but the politicians, the people making the decisions, don't, you know, don't have any shares in coal and gas companies, one would hope. So, you know, what I'm suggesting is, you know, are, are we being given irrelevant and uh, really unjustifiable policy by our governments for some spurious reason that we don't know when the argument seems so straightforward about why we should be going down the route you're talking about. I, I don't understand. I can't believe that politicians are so corrupt, morally so corrupt, that they would continue down a line um, which it just can't be supported with the science or the fact from what you said. 
Uh, so the benefit of governments, uh, the development that uh, solar and wind is cheaper than uh, like coal and gas is relatively new. Um, the, the price went down in the last uh, five years more than 80%. So the, the, the fact that solar and wind produces cheaper electricity than new built coal is probably not more than two years old. So it is a fairly new development. Uh, but I think uh, it's fair enough to say that the government should rethink uh, their energy policy and uh, have long-term policy in place. And then there is no subsidy needed for, for the introduction of renewables. And, and this is, I mean, climate change is almost irrelevant to this because we're talking about a straight commercial decision that you can put in solar and wind and the same cost for megawatt hour produced on a new coal-fired station, you can put it in the same price, you maintain your agricultural production, and as a bonus, you don't pollute the, you know, any of the waterways underneath, regardless of your arguments about, uh, about carbon putting into the atmosphere. Uh, I hope they're listening to this podcast. I just can uh, provide another example. Um, China, for the first time ever, built last year m more solar power plants than coal, gas and oil together. And the only reason for that is that solar is cheaper. Um, uh, China installed around 50,000 megawatts of new solar in the last 12 months. Australia has a power plant capacity of about 45,000 megawatts. But China also installed a new coal-fired power plant every three weeks. I think they opened one last year. Um, that was true for uh, in the period between around 2006 and 2012 or 13. Not anymore. Um, the, the new power plant uh, project have been either cancelled or um, rethinked or put on hold because also um, China's uh, electricity demand is not rising as quick as uh, they thought. So therefore, um, it is not true anymore that uh, every th third week a new coal power plant comes into a uh, place that that was the case, but not anymore. Well, Sven, thank you for throwing so much light on our on our discussion here and and bringing us your expertise. It's a it's a fascinating discussion, one that defies logic at times, it would seem, but one that's going to go on in the future. So, please, uh, I, I'm very pleased that you're able to come and join us on Angry Minders. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We'll hear from our next Angry Minder, David Chadwick, shortly. We just heard from Dr Sven Teske that perhaps we don't actually need the gas and coal and therefore maybe it's just a leadership crisis and the lack of a reserve energy policy that has caused the grief in energy prices. Sven has suggested the solution is just to leave the gas and coal in the ground. But that ignores the legitimate rights of the owners of mining licences to extract their resource and let the market decide whether or not we need it by price. And what about the rights of all Australians to have a say in what we do with our natural resources? The concerns are that our water supplies, not to mention our prime topsoils, will be lost or damaged, and farmers lose their ability to produce food and fibre on their own land. But the question is, will it? What is the proven science? And is the science core to decisions on what coal and gas we can extract in a principled and environmentally sustainable way? To explore both the perception and facts, we move to the coal face, or, or the coal gas face, of the Pilliga region of New South Wales and David Chadwick. David has been successfully operating the 10,000 head Canamble feedlot in central New South Wales for 12 years. 
He's fiercely defensive of the sustainable natural environment in which he operates, particularly water, which underlies literally all that he does. The threat of loss or pollution of that has forced him into activism against the proposed Pilliga coal seam gas projects. And he joins us today from Dubbo, New South Wales. Welcome to AgriMinders, David. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be here. David, we've been talking about this tension between uh, agricultural production and the mining of energy out of the land. Um, And we now, I want to talk particularly about the Australian situation. Now, the argument is in Australia, much the same as the, the global argument, that miners come in and they offer good money for land, probably well beyond the expectations or financial dreams of most farmers, particularly with an ageing population of farmers who are trying to see a way where they can move into retirement in their, in their later years. Um, and the agricultural quality of that land will almost certainly be decreased by that push by the farmers. How do we actually reconcile that tension? Just leaving aside at the moment whether we need the coal or the gas, the question is how does a farmer reconcile his desire to have agricultural production, his love of the land, with the need to actually look after himself a little bit and accept some of the massive money that's on offer from these miners in order to get access to their land? Well, I guess from a broader picture... Those that choose to make the commercial decision to sell to a mining company will do those regardless of their space, whether they've got children coming back into the farm or whether the money's just too good or they've had enough of drought. So the commercial reality will always take precedence in the marketplace. The big picture that we need to ask ourselves um, is whether we value food more than we do fuel or energy, particularly as we're moving swiftly into renewables. As far as the coal versus the gas, they're completely different sorts of outcomes because you physically have to buy the farm to get the coal. Whereas in uh, the gas industry, uh, it's more of an, an evasive exercise and it's probably what I regard as the melanoma of, of Earth in that what you see on the surface isn't anywhere near the problem that you see underneath. And it says those uh, water table issues that therefore have a much broader impact on the farming community generally. And as we move forward, we're living in the driest inhabited continent on the planet. And to jeopardise the Great Artesian Basin, which is our only secure water supply, and without it, we don't produce food at all on 22% of Australia, nor do communities live on that 22% because we have to have it to survive. The big picture consideration is are we just chasing a short space in time as we move through this fossil fuel into renewables and through that period of possibly up to 20 years, are we going to terminally corrupt our only secure water supply? And that's the big picture issue. But of course, in America, I lived in America for a while in Texas and most of those Texan farmers down there probably made as much or more money out of those little nodding jennies, as they call them, those little nodding oil pumps sitting on their properties, because in America, you actually own all the resources under the ground as well as the top of the ground. Whereas the big difference in Australia here is you only own the topsoil and everything below that can belong to someone else. Can those two live together? It sounds a bit like zebras and tigers being asked to live in the same cage. 
Yes, and particularly when you leave the fox in charge of the hen house. I mean, this is a self-regulating, self-reporting industry. But the full effects of what they're doing under the ground, and in particular the Great Artesian Basin, are the things that are alarming. When I started in business, and I, I note you said I was from Barabur, it's my, my mother's side of the family from there, I was actually city-born and bred, and, and my touch of the bush through my Barabur connections is what drew me to have that as my life. <clears throat> but over that period, um, back in the 90s, the water hydrologists of the day were so alarmed with the depletion of the Great Artesian Basin, they put an embargo on commercial bores because what was coming out of the boreheads and running in these open table drains called bore drains was recognised that 90% of that went on evaporation and soak and it was such a pristine and precious resource that had to be protected above all costs. So the government of the day, so therefore the taxpayer, joint funded with the farmers half a billion dollars to seal off these bores so they were now capped and the water was reticulated through pipes and troughs to throughout the farm and of course across the landscape. Now that has resulted according to the official figures of a 252 gigalitre saving of water for the Great Artesian Basin and, and to give you some idea of the scale of that, I mean, 250 gigalitres is about 50 Sydney harbours full of water. That's a lot of water. Through just simply by prudent management. Now, that was back in the 90s. Now, all of a sudden, we're going to pull 37 gigalitres out of the Great Artesian Basin in the Pilliga, which is 15% of the savings that's been achieved over the last 20 years. And somehow that's all right. So my argument is simple. What was so precious and had to be preserved above all costs back in the 90s, fast forward and now we've got an energy policy failure um, in terms of us running out of energy, but all of a sudden that significantly and most precious natural resource is now not worth protecting. So when you go and dig up to pull out 37 gigalitres, because the only way to get the gas out is with water. So if you go and put a hole through the Great Artesian Basin's most sensitive recharge zone to pull up uh, 37 gigalitres of toxic water and together will come 430,500 tonnes of toxic salt with no disposal plan. So it's going to sit there on top of the Great Artesian Basin recharge zone and either filter back in through leaching or it's going to run down the rivers and creeks. So there's two issues within this. One is the water quality on top of the water availability. But, it, but 252 gigalitres is an enormous amount of savings. But significantly, 15% in one project is a significant amount of giving back. And all we've been told for the last umpteen dozen years is, or well, the last four or five years in particular, is that we're running out of gas. But isn't it funny that as we've developed our gas industry, our energy prices have continued to grow exponentially? So yeah, but is that because gas, we're selling it all overseas or because, you know, we're not reserving it for Australia or absolutely. is that because it's not happening? Well, the more gas we produce, the more, uh, the more starved we are of gas. How can we have a gas crisis in the most energy rich and the biggest exporter of gas in the world and we haven't got any gas? So it clearly indicates that we've got a massive policy failure here. And the problem is that... We have an unfortunate situation where the industry is somehow or other being able to convince the politicians and bureaucrats that we need more gas. But we actually have enough gas 
in Australia enough existing wells for 183 years of domestic supply. And interestingly enough, the Australian energy and market operators, which is basically the industry, have come out and saying, said that the gas shortage that we were expecting has now been averted. And it's been averted by a number of reasons, part of which is that the government has started to dictate how much gas they're going to be able to export. But on top of that, there's 4,000 megawatts of um, solar and wind energy coming online next year. So they've also cited that as one of the reasons why we've averted this, this tragedy. The other interesting thing is that by them price gouging and basically cornering the average Australian household and industry into a corner on pricing, the market is the market, so it opens new opportunities. And now we see Twiggy Forest's regasification terminal coming into Port Kembla has now been elevated to critical infrastructure. So all of a sudden, by price gouging us, and that's simply for the fact that we let those um, terminals go forward up at Gladstone, and they need their critical mass, and they need that dollar because they're shareholder-driven, now we have opportunity coming forward where we can actually import gas into Australia because it's cheaper to do so, which brings me back to the Pilliga. The Pilliga is some of the most expensive gas at the wellhead in the world. Then you have to question that original comment I made, food versus fuel. What do we value most? And that's exactly what I guess we're exploring here. Um, I, just to, if we can move one, one step back from some of that history about gas in particular, you know, um, Dr. Mary McCain, who is the chief scientist and engineer of New South Wales, conducted an inquiry into gas and agriculture. And her conclusion was that with good regulation and with appropriate controls in place and competent people actually running the gas companies, it would be possible for, for, for gas and agriculture to coexist beside each other. Um, so if, if we can just leave maybe the detail of the particular jobs to one side for a second, do you think in theory it would be possible for people who own under the ground to be able to exploit their right to retrieve to retrieve that uh, particular product alongside the people on top of the ground being able to continue to produce agricultural products? No, in, in one word. Okay, and why is that? The reason being, well, simply because all wells fail. Some fail on drilling, but all will fail over time. So... When you put a well down through the basin and that deteriorates over time, how are you going to control the toxic leaks into the aquifers? And I'll give you an example. When I built the feedlot back 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I actually needed a commercial bore, but there was an embargo on commercial bores, as I touched on earlier. So one thing led to another. I was able to get some water. One of the big concerns at the water department at the time was that I was actually going to cross-contaminate the water because I already had a shallow aquifer bore of 300 metres deep and they were neurotic about the idea that I was going to contaminate one aquifer with another and I said, look, it's only water. One bore 678 metres deep, the other's 300 metres deep. What's it matter? It's only water. And they explained to me in no uncertain terms that the bacteria in one aquifer could not be contaminating the other aquifer and vice versa because it would be toxic to either of those aquifers. And if you want to Google Dr. Peter Serov, who has identified three new species of Steiger fauna in the Pilliga, world significance, that is, 
But stygofauna are like the little microorganisms that are the vacuum cleaners that keep these underground water tables clean. And they're so sensitive, you start killing them off by water-contaminating water. So what happens when you start cross-contaminating BTEX chemicals or uranium? And I'll give you an example of that. Um, a, the EPA fined um, Santos for uh, a water contamination of an aquifer 22 times over the legal limit for uranium. So we have to be under no illusion about what drives Mary O'Kane's comments, what drives government's comment, what drives bureaucracy. Because if you step back from it and you have a look at, from my angle, all the reasons why that Great Artesian Basin was the most sensitive and had to be protected above all costs, and you compare that to 20, 30 years later and you think, well, hang on, this is completely the opposite. So what about if you compare the value of the gas and the coal under the ground um, typically? Well, let's talk about the Narrabri, Namoy Valley type situation uh, specifically. Now, my, my, you know, that, that area they're talking about there, uh, I think someone said that if you, the Hunter Valley, which we're quite familiar with the mining there, if that was the size of a 50 cent piece, the Namoy Valley that we're talking about around this Narrabri project is potentially the size of the whole dinner plate. So we're talking about a much, much bigger area that's going to be affected. Uh, You know, over a reasonable period of time, is it likely that the value of the product we're going to get agriculturally off that going to be much higher than the value of the gas or coal we're going to dig out from underneath? Absolutely it will be. And I'll give you an example. We've earned Australia Proprietary Limited has earned $600 million dollars out of gas royalties in the last financial year. Agriculture produced $63.8 billion to our GDP. Above all of that, though, you need to consider in 500 years, 50 years, it doesn't matter. One thing that the human species will need for eternity is food. We will find alternative energy and as I mentioned before, there's already 4,000 watts coming online very rapidly. We have to look at efficiencies with everything we do in terms of motors and um, all these sorts of issues. So we are going to become more efficient. We might even learn to turn the lights off in those skyscrapers in Sydney once midnight comes and save ourselves a bit of energy as well. But Above all, we have to have food and we cannot produce food without water. Water is the lifeblood of, of all life. Look, we've just done two episodes on water. Don't think anyone would argue with that. I, and water, of course, is likely to be one of the big causes of conflicts globally. But I, I guess I'm pushing the point here because energy is also something which we have to have. And baseload power, you know, we can talk about, you know, getting 4,000 uh, megawatts out of out of alternative power sources. And uh, Dr. Teske has just been talking to us about that. No doubt that's going to continue to rise. But baseload power at the moment in New South Wales and even globally largely comes from coal and gas, some degree from nuclear power. Um, so I can see that the tension is going to be there between feeding the world and uh, we've actually called this episode, can we have our cake and heat it too? Because that's the dilemma we're in. And farmers and farming families generally who have been trying to improve their properties, they've been trying to grow crops uh, all these years, they're now building very sustainable farms which don't actually mine the soil and yet mining is so extractive 
but at the same time, the threat of closing down whole industries and whole and whole towns, really, from their businesses because of the lack of energy is a powerful force, not to mention the short-term political gain for governments of having royalties coming into their coffers out of the sale of those products. Um, I, I guess I'm trying to get it clear in my mind how, you know, the, the overwhelming force of demand for energy and the money from the government is going to be very hard for a farmer to, to hold it'll be like holding back the tide. What we need to do is get the decision makers to understand our side of the argument. And there is no argument from a farmer because if you boil it down, everything that the farmer produces relies on energy. So we are more sensitive to energy prices than probably any other industry in Australia. The point is this, as I mentioned earlier, we have more gas, we export more gas than anyone else in the world. How is it possible that we have an energy price crisis. We don't have an availability issue. We have a policy issue. So we see the simple solution is stop sending it all overseas and start looking after our own domestic marketplace. And that is what we're starting to see at the moment where the government's probably realising that you can't just trash all of Australia because we are sending it all overseas. At some point, there has to be some recognition that we've made a huge mistake and we've been played badly by these main mining companies who incidentally don't pay very much tax, if any. So how are we going to allow them to continue to bring more gas online and jeopardise our water and food production capacity? We, we just need to go back to the, the drawing board and say, we've got more than enough gas in Australia Let's make sure our own industries and our own households get first dibs at it and then we can have what's left over to sell to the rest of the world. If I'd have said to you 20 years ago that, that Australia would have the dearest energy prices in the world, you'd have laughed at me. So please don't laugh when farmers say that if you let this thing continue at its present rate, in 20 years' time you might be next facing a food price or availability crisis. But thank you for your time and having me on the show. David, thank you very much for bringing us uh, your views, uh, literally excusing the pun from the coalface, so to speak. Uh, it's wonderful to hear from you. I'm sure that uh, many people are in great sympathy with the view and let's hope that we can get the people and the decision makers right in that sort of balance that you're talking about. So thank you very much for joining us on AgriMinders today. So we've now heard from leading global authority on renewable energy, Dr Sven Teske, who has expressed his views that our focus should shift entirely to renewable energy. Then right at the centre of the latest CSG controversy in Canamble, New South Wales, David Chadwick left us in no doubt that in his view, the risks we're going to take by drilling through aquifers to extract the gas are inconsistent with the sustainable preservation of the underground water reserves of the Great Artesian Basin. He was adamant, and it's hard not to agree with him, that food security trumps energy mining every time. As energy's got alternatives in wind and solar, but food and water is currently irreplaceable. A man that thinks that we can have our cake and heat it too is former national leader and now northern New South Wales grazier, former Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Agriculture, John Anderson. To hear why, join us.
join us again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.